0: Welcome to The Divorce Playbook with your host, Frank LaRocca. In each episode, you'll learn about the X's and O's from the professionals who are experts in the area beyond Frank's law firm. You can find this show at www.divorcelawnj.com and on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and more. Now here's the host of The Divorce Playbook, Frank LaRocca.
1: Hey, all right. So welcome David Bruno to uh, my first podcast Uh, been been practicing law for over 25 years of a certified matrimonial law attorney. And, you know, I've been looking at you appear on Cork TV on Fox News. And I said, you know what, I got to get myself on camera. Nobody would film me. So I decided to film myself and bring special people like you on. Uh, Dave's a, a partner in the Bianchi Law Group. He's a certified criminal trial attorney. Uh, but, as everybody in our field knows, Dave is really uh, a specialist in in domestic violence, defense, and prosecution cases. So brought him on here as our inaugural guest to to talk about uh, some things uh, going on with that. How you doing, Dave? Oh, I am
2: excellent, Frank. Thank you for the invite, and especially this topic. And um, you know, I was a former homicide prosecutor in the Morse County prosecutor's office, and I experienced domestic violence firsthand. I've walked a number of crime scenes that have resulted in death uh, where I prosecuted murder cases and uh, I have a few to talk about, but that really positioned me when I left the prosecutor's office in 2013 when I came into the private practice, we specialize in criminal defense. My law partner and I are both certified criminal trial attorneys, but our experience in the domestic violence context as prosecutors really transitioned well uh for a number of reasons into the fv docket the family court where the domestic violence restraining orders are are heard it's not just uh, the 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 ability to try a case because i've been in front of juries i i've cross-examined witnesses in front of juries on murder cases and attempted murder cases and serious indictable crimes and when you go into the family part it's it's a different arena because we're in front of a superior court judge and the judge is both the fact finder and the judge for the law. They, they're they the ones to decide the final restraining order. So it's a, it's a lot less pressure when you go into that civil arena versus in front of a jury uh, criminal. But the transition is, is amazing. And we've built up the firm. We're up to seven lawyers, six former prosecutors. And I'm training them all on the FV docket so that you know, we could take our experience and help all the matrimonial attorneys when they don't want to try their cases. Yeah, and look, this, this is not going to be a show about all of your kudos, but you do deserve some.
1: I mean, I was at the family law retreat where these two guys sponsored uh, some of the stuff, and they were criminal attorneys, and and I went to a little seminar, and they were saying how good they were going to be in helping the matrimonial bar, and I really didn't pay much attention <laughs> to what you guys were saying, but after I got to know you over the years, uh, You've really been a big help because, you know, the divorce area is very busy. There's a lot of aspects to it, financial issues, business valuation, custody. And we'll get into a lot of those topics during my podcast over the course of the year. And when domestic violence trials come in, they're trials that the case comes in on a Monday. You might be trying the case seven days later and it really you really need to have your office prepared to get ready for a trial and when you're doing motions and dealing with financial issues it's really helpful to have somebody like you to come in and you can trust to be able to handle that so we're all thankful for you for you to be able to do that and you know you and I have spoken together on some domestic violence panels dave and and what I want to do in part of the podcast here is to help you know people uh, general people in the population Get some tips get some understanding as well as other lawyers to get some tips and understandings of of how to navigate these things so the the playbook is really the x's and o's and we're kind of the the coaches to kind of lay it out like how are we going to get this done um and one of the things that we talked about in, in the last seminar we did was the revision of the new jersey handbook for domestic violence cases and uh you know many people think oh if you're in a domestic violence trial you go to superior court But as you know, and as I know through my own individual experience, many, many times the domestic violence case comes in through the local police department and the municipal court. And there's certain safeguards there to protect both the victim as well as the the alleged defendant. Uh, What what stuck out for you is something that you think is important in these revisions or, or that are being stressed to be implemented now?
2: Yeah, Frank. like, like you said, when, when there's a victim of domestic violence and they need protection from someone, they have two options. They can go to the Superior Court and meet with an advocate uh, and then ultimately get in front of a judge or a hearing officer that will make a determination if the restraining order is necessary. And the other way is going to the police department or calling 911. And, and when law enforcement gets to a scene, they have a responsibility. They, they could either make an arrest or they could separate the parties and the police are required to advise the victim or who they perceive to be the victim of their rights to apply for a temporary restraining order. Now, on the on the municipal court side, one of the critical components of the manual is that the municipal court judges are required to take recordings of the applications by the plaintiffs with law enforcement. Oftentimes they call the municipal court judges and they're often at home, it's late at night and they have these recorded lines and they're required to do it. And in the absence of the recording itself, they're obligated to take longhand notes so that we don't have to recreate a record. And that's a very important safeguard because when the plaintiff makes an application, they're under oath. They, they are sworn uh, to tell the truth and the whole truth. And that's why uh, we get those recordings. And that's why it's so important to uh, cross-examine them with the recordings in those transcripts. Um, so that, that's, that's critical. Sometimes it's not done, Frank. And we, we, we have problems getting them sometimes. And actually, there is a recent uh, criminal decision where as a result of a search warrant for a temporary restraining order, there was no recording of the application and a search warrant was authorized. And then the law enforcement went in and found illegal uh, I think it was drugs. And the defense attorney could not get the recording. And because the recording was not available and they couldn't recreate it in another hearing, the prosecutor didn't call the judge to recreate the hearing. They only called the hearing, uh, the, the police officer that gave a one-sided account of the application. The criminal court suppressed the drugs, so suppressed the, I think it was drugs. So this just goes to show you why it's so important, not only in the search warrant application where there's a determination of probable cause, but it's also important for the litigants, once we have to try these cases, to have the record in which the judge made the initial temporary restraining order decision. So that, that record, right, is, is, is
1: important to a trial attorney, twofold, right? So number one, we've learned this in law school, the fruit from the poisonous tree, right? So if there's no probable cause to justify a warrant, it's a warrantless search and anything found is out. And that could be helpful or hurtful to a domestic violence case. It also could be helpful or hurtful to a subsequent criminal act. And the, the criminal defense attorney or the attorney for the defendant would wanna you know, go through that. The attorney for the, the victim Will now have a very raw, open record where they, he or she, could hear the alleged victim tell the judge why they believe they are entitled to a restraining order. Many times this is without advice of counsel. Many times it's in the spur of the moment. Listen, it's 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 uh, uh, one-sided. Decisions are made to remove people from homes, ban them from their children. Uh, without hearing from the person who's alleged to have committed an act of domestic violence. So it's very, very strong. A lot of, uh, of context goes into this. And when you have the ability to cross-examine that victim on what they testify to during the hearing, it could be really helpful. Uh, and that's yeah. a really good tool to use. A lot of people don't even ask for it or look for it. And I got to tell you, in the last four or five trials that our firm has done in the uh, in, in defense of, um, I'm sorry, in in uh, uh, prosecution of a, d- a final restraining order, the defense side didn't even ask for the basis that the alleged victim gave on the day in question when they got the restraining order, which is, yeah. I mean, it's bad. It's just bad, but that's a really big, important point. I think that- Yeah, Frank, you know,
2: and, l- and let <laughs> me add too, it's important for both sides. Mm-hmm. And and you you touched upon it a little bit, but if you're representing the plaintiff, You should also know what your client initially said because you don't want to walk into a situation where the plaintiff testifies differently from the initial application. And if the defense attorney has it and and knows what was previously testified, then that will be used as a prior inconsistent statement going and attacking the credibility of your client. So you're right, it is just important for the victim
1: to remember what what he or she said, because listen, this is a traumatic event, right? They don't even remember half the time what they said, right? People, I I don't remember exactly what I told the police. And they also remember details later from traumatic events. And Mm -hmm. if it's inconsistent and somebody on their direct testimony can give a logical explanation as to why it wasn't fully included with the police officer or why it's enhanced by their testimony now, It's going to be much better for their credibility. And it does tell their story more completely. You know,
2: Dave, it's a, go ahead. Yeah, what's also important, you just touched upon it again, is that oftentimes when it's a stressful situation, they're not including the entire history, which is critical to the final restraining order hearing when the court has to determine whether or not the restraining order is necessary for the protection of the plaintiff. And if the plaintiff doesn't include events, history, maybe even predicate acts, which is immediate, then they may be prohibited from testifying about those events later at the final. So if if it's lacking, if it's not complete, the plaintiff will have to go in and get an amendment to add, to supplement the initial application.
1: And that's kind of point two on our playbook, so to speak, having the attorney both the the, the the victim's attorney and the defense attorney review the full facts of the case uh victims should amend an attorney should talk to their their clients about the potential need to amend the restraining order to include prior acts because unlike a criminal trial where we're going to determine what happened on that day is the person guilty or not guilty of what happened on that day this is a restraining order trial. They could prove what happened on that day, and that may still not be enough for a final restraining order based upon the two-pronged test of silver. I just want to circle back on something real quick. You know, this is an intimidating process. And one of the things that that the municipal courts, the police departments, not municipal courts, are required to do is they're required – you talked about going to the court and speaking to an advocate – Victims shouldn't feel afraid to call the police. You know, sometimes the police are intimidating. But the second a victim says to the police officers, listen, I think I need a restraining order. The police are required to get a domestic violence response team person to come in, and have a confidential interview, to talk to the victim, to explain the process, to calm them down, to get them basically ready to move. Not prepare them, but to get them to understand the process that they're going to embark upon before before a judge, so victims out there who might be hearing this, don't be intimidated by calling the police. Let them know what you want, and they'll get somebody. They must get somebody there to talk to you about doing that. So somebody now gets a restraining order, and uh, you know the restraining order's got on a Monday. The first hearing is on a Friday, and Thursday afternoon you get you know three pages of amended. Uh, Uh, restraining or talking about prior history going back for four or five years. What do you as the defendant's attorney do?
2: Yeah, first thing is get the recording as we initially discussed. Second thing is now that there's a return date, there's a date in front of a court for a hearing and the rules, the subpoena rules apply. So using a subpoena duces tecum is a, a word that us attorneys use to get documents from various different agencies or witnesses. So the first thing would be get the recording, the second thing would be subpoena duces tecum to the to police department to get all of the police reports and the 911 calls. There's a long list of potential discovery that law enforcement may have which includes audio, video, and reports. So if I'm retained on Thursday, I'm having my staff make those early uh, movements to get those things. And when I appear before the judge on Friday, I let him know that we just got retained. We have subpoenas that are outstanding. We need to do our due diligence to get the documents and subpoena witnesses as well. Frank, oftentimes, We don't know who the police officers are by name because we have the temporary restraining order, which has a police officer at the bottom. But oftentimes those shifts have four, five police officers, sometimes sergeants or detectives get involved. So you may need to get the police reports to identify all the relevant witnesses that you need for the final restraining order. So those are things that I'd be talking to the judge about, the need for the police reports and then sending out subpoena deuces tecum or strike that a uh, test of a condom, which allows for the witness to come to court and actually testify on your behalf. So using subpoenas, getting the records. Also conversations with the client about what documents, what evidence they have that may be used at the restraining order hearing. Oftentimes our clients have text messages and photographs, and phone records and physical items that may be relevant to a cross-examination or a direct examination for a witness on your behalf. So a lot of it is the preparation of of reports and evidence so that you can be prepared to go into court and try this case because ultimately, the rules of evidence are going to apply at the final restraining order, meaning that the attorneys need to authenticate exhibits, so that we know that they're authentic, and judges need to make determinations whether or not evidence is going to be admissible. So on the
1: defendant side, I remember in the beginning, years ago, when I would have a, a domestic violence trial, I'd want to get a subpoena out, even if I didn't think the subpoena was going to be fruitful, just so I didn't have to try the case the very next day. I wanted to say, Judge, I have a subpoena out, I didn't get responses yet. It's more clear now that both the defendant and the victim are allowed initial adjournment requests upon their, you know, the victim's consent or, or the defendant's consent in order to move forward to be properly prepared. The uh, mm-hmm. defendants are even now uh, read an, am- uh, an admonition that they have a right to an attorney. It's not a right to an attorney where they're going to get a public defender, but they have a right to retain, keyword, to retain their own attorney for these proceedings because of the consequences of the entry of a final restraining order.
2: Yeah, oftentimes that subpoena deuces tecum is going to be valuable, especially when law enforcement is involved, because they're they're required to document things in reports, and often and nowadays we got these body cams, these MVRs, the motor vehicle recorders that have audio and video that is going to be relevant to some of the statements by either the plaintiff or the defendant. And then, Frank, also, look, there's a recent case, and and we've talked about this when we were on the panel last. Um, That is important for the judge at the time the parties appear to advise the defendant, not only that they have a right to an attorney, but there's going to be consequences to the entry of the final restraining order. Uh, They're going to be in a database. This is forever. It's not like some other states that have a duration to the final restraining order. And there are a series of collateral consequences that a defendant needs to be advised and aware of when they're considering whether to either agree to stipulate to the domestic violence restraining order, to try the restraining order, or to seek out counsel.
1: Now, that's all true. Now, you talked about text messages as evidence, and in the beginning, (laughs) I'm saying this, I'm dating myself, when people were bringing in text messages, you know, they would come up to the judge and be like, judge, he, you know, he said it right here. I mean, here's my phone. I mean, look, it's, it's a real recording of the text, but the best practices now states that you should be prepared for your trial with printed out copies of the text messages in full detail, not edited, not redacted in full verse for better or for worse so that that can be presented to the court. So alleged victims can't come to court and say, I have this at home, this is on my phone, I'll show it to you, I'll get it for you. A lot of victims come in pro se, they don't have attorneys that are coming in with them. They need to know, and no one's gonna tell them this. They need to know, and and this again, part of the playbook for people who come in on their own, be prepared to have your trial. If there's things that you need to talk about that show that your case is correct, like text messages, videos, pictures, audios, things he did in front of my mom, have mom there, have the audio, have the video, have the text there. On video, you know, a law was passed, I think, in 2010, but I'm not sure that officers are required to wear body cameras. When officers respond to a domestic, their body camera is on. But it's not protocol for every department to save those recordings forever. A timely request for those body cam recordings uh, is needed. Both sides should try to get it. Very, very important. See the condition. There were no bruises on his or her face. But, you know, seeing the condition, what they looked like, showing that picture, a freeze frame of your client who has no bruises but clearly looks disheveled is very powerful other than a written report that says, no, there were no signs of visible bruising, which requires an automatic arrest. So those are two different, you know, things that are recorded in a police uh, um, report
2: yeah two points on that frank uh first is that the reason why we need the the text messages in document form is because there could be an appeal for the case Uh, when you're trying the case for the final restraining order it's before a superior court judge and if the final restraining order is entered or even not entered there's an opportunity for the adverse party to file an appeal that goes up to the appellate division. And the appellate division will need a record. They're not going to be getting your phone. Um, They're going to need the printed out exhibits that are admitted into evidence in consideration of the appeal. That's number one. Uh, Second point is on the electronic evidence. You touched upon this in a sense that things may be purged. Oftentimes, if 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 there may be surveillance video or nest video, or something on the side of a building, and it also includes body cams and MVRs and 911 calls. Um, It's important to preserve them. If you can't get them by way of a subpoena, uh, preservation letters are a term uh, that we use. And that is essentially alerting uh, a party or a company or an agency that there's a litigation and that they need to preserve certain pieces of evidence, typically electronic evidence, so that it's not purged or deleted. And if there's purge, if there's a deletion after that, well, then the party that deleted it may have to answer some questions in the court of law.
1: Yep. That's that's very important. So now we had talked briefly before we get on that, about there's some additional legislation coming down the pike with respect to number one, predicate acts being expanded, which is the current event so to speak the reason that you're there in front of a judge to get a restraining a final restraining order the main reason without regard so much as to the history as well as uh expansion of the potential relationship between the uh victim and the defendant um, now what i've heard from some of people that are on the family law executive committee is that a just a separate standalone predicate act of coercive control is being proposed by the legislators, which which is a wide variety. Um, you know, a lot of times in in divorce cases, they talk about acts of extreme cruelty. He would never let me go out with my friends. He wouldn't let me wear certain kinds of clothes. He separated me from my family. He didn't want me to spend time with my father. And you think, well, you know, that's somebody. These people shouldn't be married. That's really bad. These types of behaviors, it's being contemplated are gonna rise to the level of a potential predicate act of domestic violence. Uh, have you heard anything about that? Do you have any feelings about that?
2: Yeah, well, start, let's start with foundational for, for our audience, and that is that there are a, a list of crimes and offenses that are called predicate acts. And to get a restraining order, a temporary or a final, you have to establish that one of those predicate acts has been committed. And that includes burglary, contempt, criminal mischief, harassment, and and I want to star that a little bit because that's already very broad, Um, lewdness, murder, robbery, sex assault, simple assault, stalking, terroristic threats. Those are to name a few. Um, But that harassment statute as a predicate act is broad already. And this is where really there's a lot of uncertainty when you come into the court here about whether or not it rises to a level of harassment. And that's what I fear from just expanding these predicate acts more, like these coercive acts. It sounds very arbitrary to me. It seems like it could be another broad, overbroad predicate act that could be used, unfortunately. And look, there's real domestic violence out there. Don't get me wrong. I I talked about it initially. I walked crime scenes of domestic violence that resulted in death. But there are times where this Domestic Violence Act and these restraining orders are being used improperly as leverage. Oftentimes, it occurs during a, a situation of divorce or separation, where when you get to the final restraining order hearing, there's discussions about resolution involving parenting time and custody and pendente lite relief and things along those lines where unfortunately people are displaced for their homes and their their parenting times suspended on the entry of these temporary restraining orders. And the last thing we need is another way for there to be improper uses of the Domestic Violence Act. So I think initially, that's kind of one of the concerns that I have is to expand the predicate acts to another very overbroad predicate act could create some more uncertainty in the courts. Yeah. And this is, you know, this co- this coercive control issue, and you put the
1: asterisk around harassment, uh, it seems to be in that type of a category. And you know, we've talked about this before. Criminal de- attorney, criminal eyes, prosecutorial eyes, defense attori- attorney eyes, looking at what happened that day. There's a different standard, really, for a domestic violence case. Because somebody walking past somebody and saying, yeah, I got you. I mean, that's nothing. That's not even harassment criminally. However, if you testify about prior history, not prior criminal history, just prior history in the relationship, uh, that one comment could constitute domestic violence. And there's certainly, certainly cases of harassment that constitute domestic violence and certainly cases of coercion. We can talk about them that should constitute domestic violence. But the issue is education. The issue is advocacy, because in the middle of the night, when a judge is being called by a police officer saying there was an incident at the home resulting in a 911 call and a response for a husband and a wife or a man and a woman or a man and a man fighting, and there's an allegation of harassment, coercive control, and they talk about a history, it's very difficult for a judge sometimes to say, I'm not going to grant the restraining order. Um, and not every municipal court judge is a family law attorney. You know, the, the, some of them are not. A lot of them are not. And they don't have that training and experience of trying cases and the consequences from early restraining orders uh, to, to, to vet that out. That said, these victims, that to the extent that this is not something planned just to get so-and-so out of the home, they do need the protections of a domestic violence restraining order. So it's a really, really tough topic uh, to deal with.
2: Yeah, Frank, one more point too on on the bill. It's a Senate bill that was passed by the Senate. It has to go to the Assembly to become, uh, actually you got, you got to get the Senate and the Assembly to both approve it and then it goes up to the governor. But this particular bill also expands the relationship that's required that can get a temporary restraining order now generally speaking there has to be a domestic violence relationship which includes a spouse a former spouse any person that's a present household member there's there's three levels that are required as a criteria to get a restraining order under the bill that's been proposed it allows for people without a dating relationship without a domestic violence relationship in certain circumstances that include stalking cyber harassment, sexual assault, and criminal sexual assault. If that were to pass, then it would allow people without the required relationship as it stands under our Domestic Violence Act to be able to get restraining orders with those particular allegations. Under the Prevention of Domestic Violence Act? Under the Prevention of Domestic Violence Act. Now, I've also spoken to some people in FLEC who's been back and forth on that. And what it makes, it makes more sense to put this on the SASPA Act. Okay, SASPA is a little bit different. That's the sex assault victim protection because prior to any of this discussion of this bill, um, there would be a victim of a sex assault without the appropriate domestic violence relationship that couldn't get a protective order. Right. And that's just not fair or just correct. So what our legislators did is they carved out the sex assault and sex act related protections that give them similar, no contact orders and restraints as the domestic violence act. So here it's almost like a hybrid between the two. Mm -hmm. They're trying to put it in the domestic violence act, but there's going to be all kinds of problems involving the search warrant that's also attached to the Domestic Violence Act, as well as silver and various different other collateral consequences that come with the Domestic Violence Act. I think it's unsettled right now because this is just a Senate bill that's gone over to the Assembly, but there are some rumblings to really change this Domestic Violence Act, as you said, with the coercive um, conduct, as well as expanding the relationship as to who can get a restraining order under the act. See, the expansion topic is important, and whether it lands under the
1: Prevention of Domestic Violence Act or goes under SASPA, probably those things need to, to, to occur. There probably needs to be some type of emergent relief somebody can get for somebody they have no relationship with. You know, because sometimes you know, with the advent of all of this social media, I mean, there's so many social media mm-hmm. platforms. I've had people in front of me in different areas of, of the law believe that they have dating relationships with people they've never met at all Um, and making phone calls to them, going by their house, stopping at their job, sending them flowers, following them to the store, showing up at church, going to a family funeral. These are all real examples. Mm -hmm. But if that person called the local municipality or went down to the domestic violence unit at the courthouse, they wouldn't have jurisdiction to get a domestic violence restraining order. And I'm not necessarily certain that a phone call in the middle of the night to a judge is going to get them protection under SASPA either. So having this come to the forefront, I think, is very important uh, for protection of alleged victims. So that's it's a good discussion to have. And if the legislators started off with their left foot and they should have started off with their right foot, I'm sure they're going
2: to they're going to get it right. Yeah, to your point, cyber cyber harassment, Um, it's relatively new in our law, and it was added as a predicate act on the domestic violence in the domestic violence act. So that's an appropriate predicate act for um, somebody that has that domestic violence relationship, but it does not fit in saspa. I think that's one of the changes that need to be addressed, is that giving the victims of cyber harassment an avenue of protection when the domestic violence relationship cannot be established. Right.
1: Well, listen. We talked about a lot today, and and you know, we're two different lawyers. We come from two different backgrounds. I come from a strictly family law background, doing divorce stuff, and you come from a criminal background. Who do you think is a be- better fit to, to to handle a domestic violence trial? Do you think that an alleged defendant needs somebody who's a prosecutor, or that you need an alleged victim needs somebody who's a family law attorney? What are your feelings on
2: that? Sure. I look. Former prosecutors have experience in, in front of juries. And as i said in the in the beginning that that is a skill set that really can only come with experience and that transitions well i mean i'm biased because i'm a former prosecutor and i'm a criminal defense attorney but the experience is critical in that court because the rules of evidence apply you need to be able to either try your case as a plaintiff and establish the, the burden that's required or as a defendant, the skills really are cross-examination and being able to get into it and, and confront witnesses and alleged victims about the facts of the case. And I think that experience is critical. If it's a family law attorney and they have experience in that context, handling the FV docket, the domestic violence restraining orders, that's good. But I would favor a former prosecutor that has experience on their feet in front of juries um, because the experience is so important. So I've tried a lot of domestic violence restraining order
1: cases. And uh, when I used to get the attorneys fresh out of the prosecutor's depart- office, I would, I would lick my chops because while they had trial experience and while they've had investigatory experience, what they didn't have is experience in front of the family bench. Mm. And what they didn't have was the intricacies and the knowledge of prior history and how divorce cases are handled and how people have what are called domestic contretemps during their divorce cases and what's the difference between domestic violence and domestic contretemps and what, what we both agree on is somebody with significant trial experience is the favored result if you're going to trial this is a matter of significant consequence a final restraining order like
2: you said is is final um I know I want want to add. I want to add to my answer because you're right. Look, (laughs) I mean, first of all, the remedies that that are available to plaintiffs cross over into the matrimonial court often. Like the custody, uh, the pendente lite relief, child support, child support guidelines. I'm telling, man, I have learned so much since leaving the prosecutor's office in 2013 and it has allowed me to learn from people like you and your colleagues on the family law side. When we work together on the cases, right. there's, there's a learning curve to it. Don't get me wrong. That experience is not everything in that court because there's so much crossover into the matrimonial court. And you could start establishing status quo, which essentially could affect the remedies that somebody gets in the matrimonial cases. So to your point, Frank, it's a hybrid experience and the knowledge of all of the matrimonial issues that could be important to know when you're handling the domestic violence case. All right, Dave, listen, Dave, I, I could vouch for you. I mean, I know you have put the
1: work in to have both. I mean, your career as a prosecutor you know, stands alone uh, and your career in, in the domestic violence arena is starting to stand alone as well. I know you've put in the work. Um, you don't go into these domestic violent cases solo uh, you talk to the lawyers that are involved, and in addition, you understand the points that are involved. You have a good rapport with the judges. You handle the clients' uh, emotional issues with respect to knowing that they're going through a divorce, both sides of the, the aisle. So I think that you know I wouldn't be licking my chops if you were on the other side. Put it this put it this way: I'd be I would be uh, up for a formidable bout. And uh, I think people who are are, are not prosecutors. Who are you know divorce attorneys, matrimonial law attorneys? Uh, they should have, if you're selecting an attorney, somebody who has experience, vast experience trying cases. Because, like you said, trial attorney, rules of evidence, they prevail at a trial. It's not arguing emotion. You don't get this to just say whatever you want and talk to the judge whenever you want. There's rules of evidence that apply, and you need to be a master of them.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I'm
1: I'm really glad that you came on uh, on this show on the podcast, our first one. I think we brought you brought a lot to the table. I love being on panels with you. It's thirty six minutes already. I feel like we're talking for five minutes, and that's how it I always agree. Is when we get together. Do you have anything final to add? Yeah,
2: you know, feelings mutual, Frank. Uh, definitely, I, 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 you're a formidable adversary as well. And look for for the family law attorneys out there. I mean, the key number one is preparation, a, as always, and, and it's knowing the rules of evidence and knowing the case law, Frank because these domestic violence published cases are coming out hot. Yep. Um, there's a lot of them coming out in this context. They're oftentimes unpublished, but following the case law is another important thing to handle here. And if you're handling the matrimonial case, there there's nothing wrong with bringing on somebody for the domestic violence case too, because you have a lot to deal with on the matrimonial FM docket. I mean, with the experts and all the various different things that happen on that side, um, it's not a horrible thing to bring someone on to dialogue and work with on the FV2. Frank, it's been a pleasure. I'm honored to be your first guest and uh, definitely good luck in the future with this podcast and the firm. All right, man thank you very much dave bruno from the bianchi law
1: group appreciate you coming on my pleasure frank
0: you've been tuning into the divorce playbook with your host frank laraka to review the x's and o's of your divorce frank's law firm can help you you can find this show at www.divorcelawnj.com and on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Thank you for your positive feedback, comments, questions, and for sharing this show with others.